Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Corpus coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're speaking to a man whose heart well and truly beats true for the red and the blue. As a player, Harold Hassett Mann won three premierships, three best and fairest, and has a place in both Melbourne's Team of the Century and the AFL Hall of Fame. He was a key figure in the Demons' golden era that stretched from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. As an administrator, he served as CEO from 1992 to 97, a period that saw the club go perilously close to merging with Hawthorne. On the field and off, Hassaman has lived through the good times, but also very much experienced the bad times at the club he loves. And we're so glad to have him on the show. Hassa, hello and welcome. As I mentioned off the top, your journey is a fascinating one. Let's rewind all the way back. Where, where did it first start, Hassa? Well, I was born in a little country town called Merbeen, about 300 or 560 odd k's from Melbourne. Merbeen being near Mildura. So, um, my first uh, entry into the football world was uh, through the San League. Now, it was your cousin and, as it turned out, future Melbourne footballer Len Mann who dubbed you Hassa. But but how? What are the origins of the of the nickname that became your name? Look, I'm not quite sure, Sam. I, I put it down to Len. Uh, we grew up as brothers in the country and uh, uh, how it came about, look, I don't really know. So the little town of Merbein, obviously outside Mildura, you played 16 years at, at, at what age, Hassa? I played my first senior game at age 16, and it was after the my first senior game that uh, in the evening at 6.30 approximately, there was a knock on the door and Jim Cargill, secretary of the Melbourne Footy Club, was up there to recruit another member of the Merbein side. And uh, we found that uh, Jim made his way to my parents' place on the Saturday evening after my first game. Now, that was Melbourne, but they, were, they had competition, didn't they? How many clubs were chasing you for your signature? Well, at that stage, not. No, not really, Sam, because, as I say, I was only a 16-year-old kid and um, um, I probably hadn't had any reputation of, at that stage. And it was just so happened that uh, Jim was there, as I say, to recruit another member of the team, which uh, obviously um, didn't happen. No, but your commitment to Melbourne didn't come for some time after that. Am I right in saying? Well, in those days, you signed a Form 4, which tied you to the club for a period of two years and um, I was reluctant to sign with Jim on that first evening because uh, at that stage I was an avid Essendon supporter and uh, <laughs> I wasn't overly keen, uh, knew nothing much about the Melbourne Footy Club at that point. <laughs> 
So, so as time went on, then, and perhaps some other clubs became interested, were, were, were your beloved Essendon one of those? No, that they weren't, and uh, unfortunately. I guess at the time, but as it turned out, I guess the uh, decision I made to sign with Melbourne uh, turned out to be quite a good one. It did indeed. We'll get to that in a moment. But what actually got you over the line? Wasn't it a pair of specially made boots for your sort of wider feet there, Hassa, that might have won the race for your services? Well, in those in those days, um, uh, money didn't play a part, and uh, I signed with Melbourne with a pet for a pair of footy boots, which incidentally I never ever wore. <laughs> I think they, I, I think they were someone else's boots, to be honest. And, uh, Jim, well, uh, it's Jim good. Thought, Jim, Jim thought he was doing well. It's good business from Melbourne, then, isn't it? So. I mentioned the timing, and this is where great fortune obviously comes into it. You you arrive at Melbourne at a glorious time in 1959. Now, the D's had won premierships in 55, 56, 57. They were beaten by the Pies in 58. But I wanted to ask you, in those first couple of years at Melbourne, what was it like around the city, around town, in this era, to be known as a Melbourne player? Well, before I went to Melbourne, I think it's important to note that I was transferred in my employment down to Rutherglen. Yep. Um, in the ovens at Murray, and I played a season or three quarters of a season with uh, with Rutherglen. And there's no doubt in my mind that the the, the season that I had in the ovens at Murray, which at the time was regarded as the best league outside of the city, um, I gained some enormous experience in that all the coaches of the eight teams in the um, in the ovens at Murray were in fact ex-league players. I mean, uh, uh, my coach at Rutherland was Ray Ward, who played with Collingwood. Bob Rose was coaching Wangaratta Rovers. Um, Bill Stevens was coaching Yarrawonga from Fitzroy. Des Healy Collingwood was coaching Wodonga. Uh, Len Fitzgerald from ex-Collingwood was coaching Vanilla. Jimmy Dean, ex-Richmond, was coaching Myrtleford. So the, so the league itself was a very strong league, and I guess that uh, playing against men basically for the first time in that competition certainly uh, gave me a little experience uh, and a stepping stone from uh, the small and Razor League into the big league. Well, it certainly prepared you well because in your debut year, you win best first-year player and you win a flag at 18 to cap it all off. In fact, you kick the sealer, don't you, to win it against Essendon, of course, the side that you're obviously telling us that you bagged for growing up in 1959. I mean, this was a, a big first year and, and the stuff of dreams in many ways, Hassa. Well, it was an interesting one, Sam, in that I never nearly didn't play uh, in the grand final because in the, I think it was about July... August, I got called up to do my national service, and uh, uh, the intake was to take place in September. Right, um, which which created a, a bit of a hassle, and the Melbourne Footy Club decided to take the army to court, and um, we we went to court, and uh, and and Jimmy Cargill had a legal rep- representative, obviously, and uh, when he put the case forward, that he was a chance for a a young 18-year-old kid to uh, play in the grand final, experience something that very few people have the uh, opportunity to do so. And I thought after the, uh, the our representative's submission, there's no way in the world I was going to miss playing in the grand final. And then the Army came along, and after their submission, there was no way that I was going to play. Um, as they argued that I shouldn't be seen as the exception and given any opportunity to bypass when our argument was not to 
bypass doing the actual um, national service, but in fact seek a deferment. Uh, luckily enough, the judge ruled in our favour, which made me able to uh, to play in the final series. Jeez, they would have been anxious times for you. And when did you end up doing your national service, Assa? Well, as it turned out, uh, I was deferred to, I think it was March the following year, and then the national service was abolished. <laughs> so I never, in fact, did the national service. Right. And I got, and I got to play in the grand final. Well, you fulfilled your service of a different kind because Melbourne were happy to have you on the day. As I say, you played a big part in that and throughout your debut season in 1959. For those that don't remember you as a player, Hassel, or weren't fortunate enough to watch you run around in the red and the blue, just describe yourself. What would you say your strengths were as a player? I was probably had some skill, I guess. Uh, I had a little bit of pace, I guess, and uh, I, I thought I was quite a good team player. Um, uh, in actual fact, Sam, I thought that um, what I achieved in football probably exceeded the ability that I had. I think you're far too modest there, and the record would suggest otherwise, but uh, you, you're more than welcome to uphold the, the modesty card here. There's no problem with that, Hasser, and many people will remember you as a player and the influence you had over a long period of time. Let's move well, on. Sam, I, yep. I, was very, I was very lucky to, to come into the Melbourne side. I mean, uh, yep. the actual team, I think there was only Tassie Johnson and myself were the only two players in that 59 team that hadn't played in you know premierships prior. And that a number of our players, of the Brassies, Dixon, Adams and so forth, had all played in at least three for that time. So uh, um, as a young, inexperienced kid, we were very fortunate to be fitted in. And, and just I asked this earlier, Hasser, um, can you remember, can you take us into the, the city at this point in time? What was it like for a side that was so wildly successful, winning premierships basically year upon year, what it was like as an 18-year-old in the, the city of Melbourne to be known as a Demons player at that time? Well, I guess you you don't think about it very much as a young 18-year-old kid. You're just, um, just thrilled to be able to be able to, you know, to, to get a game. Um you know, I, I probably thought in my first year, well, um, you'd probably spend the time in the reserves. Um, I, I remember the first, or the, the last practice game, Sam, was an interesting one in that Jimmy Cardwell came up to me just before the last, on the Thursday night before the last practice game and said to me and told me that I was a bit of an embarrassment to him in that he had, he had sort of promoted me as a top recruit and, uh, my form hadn't been exceptionally good. Mm. He told me that I was going to be tested out in that first game um, by Jeff Case, an ex- a, a Victorian player. And uh, lucky enough, I kicked, I think, four or five goals from the last practice game, which earned me a spot in the team as a 19th man for the first game of the season. Uh, I then played two in the reserves, I think it was, and never played reserves again in my career. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Now, while he couldn't have timed his arrival much better, Hassaman also found himself at the centre of the most seismic chapters in Melbourne Football Club history. That's next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with Melbourne icon Hassa Mann. 
Hassa, I know you've spoken a bit about how fortunate you were to land at Melbourne at the time that you did. You also arrived at a club where the legendary Norm Smith is the coach. We could probably speak about this for hours, but what impression did Norm make on you? Look, to be honest, Sam, I think anything that I achieved in my sporting career, in my football career, I owe to Norm. I mean, uh, he was just a person that I idolised as a person. Uh, his principles were was very, very strong and, um, and thrown at us. And uh, he was the sole reason, I think, that I achieved what I did achieve in, in my football career. He would obviously wind up a six-time premiership coach. The resume is incredible. But he was also a stickler for discipline, wasn't he, Hasser? And he had nicknames like the Demon Dictator and, and the like, but he was straight down the line, wasn't he? He was. Um, one thing I recall about Norm is he had a very good memory for the things you did wrong. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, um, if he was to tap you on the shoulder and told you and tell you that you'd played a good game, you would go home at night and rest easy. But his influence went beyond football, though, didn't it? And it went into life. I mean, you're a young man at this stage, and, and there were many like you at the club. Tell us about how he shaped you know, your life, I guess, when, when you're at a, an age where, obviously, you're easily influenced and, and people go in all sorts of different directions. The, the influence he had on you as a teenager. He had very strong principles and, and, and stood by those principles. Uh, the principles of loyalty, the principle principle of honesty were two that he, he kept pushing very hard and the thing that I also admired about him that he treated everyone as an equal and uh, the Barassis and the stars of the Melbourne team uh, they cop their criticism when due as much as all of us and uh, it was it was enormous I, I guess attitude and uh, that we were all prepared to to probably run through a brick wall, knock ourselves out and get up again for the man. Mm. That is a well-worn saying, being willing to run through a brick wall for the coach, but you're saying you'd get knocked out and you'd get up and run through it again. (laughs) Well, that's what you do for Norm because we all just admired him so much. And I say he was was, uh, very strong all the time on the on the strong principles of life. We discussed your three premierships earlier, Hassa. After the 1964 season, you're basking in the glow of your third flag. You're 24, young in any, every sense. You're a vice captain. You're a two-time best and fairest winner at this stage. And life, I imagine, couldn't be much better. But then the great Ron Barassi, the captain, drops the bomb that he's off to Carlton. Now, can you go back, and I know it's a long time, but take us inside, give us an insight into the level of shock felt by you and your teammates at this time when this was uh, announced? Well, initially it was just unbelievable that the guy such as Barassi who had the standing uh, as a player and as a person uh, and was red and blue through and through. His father played for the club. Um, for him to, out of the blue, as it turned out, announced that he was affecting the Carlton. And as a player, it was just hard to understand how Barassi could do that because Barassi was red and blue um, through and through. And it was just unbelievable. And and it just hit the shock of it. Just was... Um, uh, well, you can't, you couldn't explain it really. So you obviously uh, had no inkling at all beforehand, Hassa. We had nothing. 
no inkling at all. And as it turned out, um, and we found out later, Norm Smith was even prepared to stand aside to let Ron coach Melbourne. Mm. He knew that he had strong coaching aspirations. And uh, Norm, at that stage, who had the record of you know, playing, having Melbourne in the finals in 10 successive years for six premierships, he was prepared to stand aside for Brassie. The Brass, uh, as he is, um, very strong-willed person, felt that it was best for him if he was going to pursue a coaching career not to coach the Melbourne side at that stage. Did Ron address the players at all before he departed? No. No, the first we found out was uh, reading it in the, or hearing it over the news and reading it in the papers. I was going to ask you if you could remember the exact moment that you heard the news and how. I think I was probably in the car uh, driving somewhere um, and, boy, you know, what a shock. A lot of people listening today obviously weren't around at this time. Can you give us a sense of just how big a, a story and moment this was in the in the history of the game, Hassa? Can you put it into words, do you think? I don't know that I can, Sam, mm. other than... Um, no, I can't really. It was just unbelievable. I yeah. mean, um, a good mate, uh, a fine leader of the club, um, to come out of the blue so unexpectedly was just, um, as I say, unbelievable. Were you and he close during your, your playing days at this time? I think we were all close, and that was probably part of the success of the Melbourne football team is that we were a very close-knit um, bunch. Uh, and, and, and a close-knit family. And this was one of the principles also of Norm Smith, that it was important that the females of the club were also a team um, with the players off. And so we were, in a true sense, a real family club. And the mood of the players, Hasser, I mean, obviously initially shock, as you say. Did shock turn to anger? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think we all felt disappointed with Ron because he decided to leave the club but also we know the type of person Barassi is that he's a, a very um, success oriented person and we knew that if he had made that decision it would not have been made lightly and that uh, once it was made that he would go on and pursue a very successful career um, in his own right. So as, as time did go on in the immediate aftermath, did his motivation for leaving Melbourne for Carlton become understandable almost, or never? It was always hard to understand why he would want to leave Melbourne. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and I think that uh, uh, that would be the same for all players. Uh, why, why, the question, why um, did he want to leave Melbourne? Did you ever speak to him after he left? I'm sure you caught up many a time, but was this something that you ever uh, discussed with him? Not really. No, not really. Um, um, we knew that once Barras makes up his mind to do something, uh, he would give it 100%, and uh, that decision would not have been made lightly. Particularly, it would have been very hard for him, Sam, to, to leave the Melbourne Football Club particularly because of his background and his and his family background. And we were speaking about, you know, relationships. He was obviously very close with, with Norm, didn't he? he? He lived in Norm's house for a period of time, didn't he, as a youngster? He did that. He did that. And uh, uh, that made it even more surprising that um, he would want to leave. 
You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, if the departure of Barassi came as a shock to Hassaman and his Melbourne teammates, it's arguable it was nothing compared to what was to come next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Melbourne Team of the Century member Hassa Mann. Hassa, despite the upheaval Barassi's departure to Carlton may have caused initially, you made a strong start to the 1965 campaign, didn't you? We did, Sam. We got away to a very good start, winning the first eight games and uh, and obviously sitting on top of the ladder and looking strong uh, uh, and looking forward to another successful season. But then, that was not to happen, was it? No, it was not. That's an understatement. You lost three of your next four games, but then things really exploded before the round 13 uh, game against North Melbourne that was to take place at Coburg. Now, the night before that game, you were spending some time over the phone. Again, nothing unusual with uh, Norm Smith that night on, on Match Eve to discuss some specifics around the game the next day with the Kangaroos. No, it was a usual occurrence. Uh, Norm would give me a call on the Friday evening mm. and discuss the tactics of the game and uh, discuss what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. Um, and we had that conversation, which lasted for about 10 or 15 minutes, I guess. And then uh, um, I heard through the phone the doorbell ring. And Norm then said, look, we've uh, covered our discussion uh, for tonight. Uh, there's someone at the door. I'll leave it there. We'll see you tomorrow. So we uh, we, we hung up and I have a glass of milk and about uh, two minutes later, the phone rang again. And uh, there's this person on the phone uh, quite agitated and upset. Uh, and he said, it's Norm here. And I said, I've just spoken to Norm Smith, you know, who is it? He said, no, no, it's Norm. And uh, he said, I've just been sacked. And I said, I recall saying, I thought it was some crank. <laughs> and I said, you know, get off the phone, you silly bee. And uh, Norm then convinced me that it was him and, uh, and he was crying. And... Uh, um, I just couldn't understand that he'd been sacked. Here we had played, we'd won eight of our first 10 games, sitting on top of the ladder, doing nicely, and they sacked him. Unbelievable. Um, so as it turned out, Sam, um, um, we had a quick conversation, we hung up, and then my wife and I decided to drive to Coburg to, uh, to Norm's house because... Um, he obviously was very upset. We were met at the door by Norm uh, crying, his wife Marge crying, um, his brother Len and his wife crying. Um, so I guess Glennis and I join in. <laughs> it was just a, it was just a unbelievable um, moment that 
I will never ever forget. So the noise you heard with the doorbell ringing was actually a, a courier, wasn't it, delivering a, a termination notice? It was a courier delivering a telegram. Um, and that in itself, yeah, from the club's perspective, how could big business people deliver a bombshell like that, not having the guts to do it face-to-face? It was just... Uh, could not be explained. I could not explain. And can you explain now? Surely politics are at play here, given the win-loss. So did you have any grasp at the time or in the years after what was taking place behind the scenes that, that might have led to this, Hassel? We knew that there was some tension between Norm and the club in that Norm, some weeks earlier, had had a, um, had made a, 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 a statement against an umpire Mm. And uh, that got a bit, um, a bit, fair bit of tension with that. Um, and we found out later that the football club, when I think it went to court, and uh, the football club, uh, in their wisdom, question mark, decided not to support Norm. So that I think was the the catalyst uh, that started the the the, the club uh, having some doubts about Norm. It was also, I think, that Norm was pushing very hard, uh, the club very hard at the time, because he felt that uh, that we're getting near the end of an era where, I guess, the last three or four players of the, uh, the boom recruits of 53-54 that took Melbourne through to that magnificent run were, was ending. And Norm felt that the club had to change its strategy and its attitude and had to start basically looking at paying for players, which other clubs were doing at the time. And Norm was, was adamant at the time that we had to, if we were going to continue to be successful, we had to match what the other clubs were doing. And the club, of course, was uh, reluctant to do that. You've got to imagine also, Sam, that the time that uh, the Melbourne Football Club was a section of the MCC, mm. basically the MCC bankrolled the Melbourne Football Club and uh, uh, with their other uh, activities and their other responsibilities for the other sections of the club, uh, I guess had to be careful on, on how they treated the Melbourne Football Club uh, with respect to the other um, sections of the club. But that, that also, I think, Norm was quite right in his approach because... We do. We did have to. Melbourne did not have any contract players per se, uh, and at that stage, I think Barassi, as captain of the club, was getting probably two pound a week more than the recruit playing his first game. Um, and other clubs at that stage were were certainly paying players uh, and recruiting players and um, enticing players to come to the club because of that. Uh, payment scheme. So everyone's in tears at, at Norm's house on the Friday night. Now, you, you did have to front up and play the next day, didn't you, at Coburg against the Kangaroos? I mean, how difficult was that? Very difficult. I recall, I think I got home from Norm's place on the Saturday morning at about uh, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. And early the next day, I phoned all the players um, and told them the situation that uh, we were confronted with. 
Uh, Jackie Hughes was as chairman of Selector was going to coach the team at North Melbourne, and uh, uh, it was a atrocious day at Coburg. I think the first first and only time we played at Coburg, um, we lost the game. And an interesting point that after the game, as captain, I was confronted by the president Don Duffy, who made it very clear that I was not to appear on television the next day. I was not to be seen as supporting Barassi. And if I did, it would jeopardise my captaincy. Um, so I looked Don Duffy in the eyes and said, Don, I will be appearing tomorrow. I will be supporting Norm Smith. And uh, if that, if I lose my captaincy over that, so be it. So I made it very clear that um, um, I, as all other players, were very supportive of Norm. Mm. That only that was only the start of then the next interesting five or six days when um, a group of business people and legal people decided to challenge the Melbourne Football Club to get Norm Smith back as coach. <laughs> and it was Trevor Rapke, a, a very senior Victorian judge who led the Get Smith Back to Melbourne campaign, which, um, um, as it turned out, was successful. And five, four or five days later, Norm was reinstated as coach of Melbourne. And and that's just crazy, isn't it? But the, the damage was done, wasn't it? I mean, you, you won only one more game for the year. You missed the finals for the first time in 11 years as a result. And so in a matter of a few, what, dramatic months, Hassa, you, Melbourne's dominance had, had just been dismantled. I mean, you wouldn't make the finals again until, what, 1987. And as of 2021, right now, you haven't won a premiership since Smith's dismissal. It was a cataclysmic period of, of time, wasn't it? Well, it was, and it, um, that period, particularly for the rest of the season, it was a terrible situation to be in, as you could sort of feel the tension between the playing group, uh, the coaching group, and the committee. And uh, uh, you know, people were sort of standing in corners in groups and so forth, and uh, you could just, as a player, you could feel the tension between coach players and club and uh, it was something that I think that not I think I know is affected and had a, a, a gigantic effect on the club for decades after that. We're talking to Hassaman on This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Next, the abandoned merger with Hawthorne. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Former Melbourne great Hassaman is our guest today. Hassa, in 1967, you win your third Melbourne Best and Fairest, and I think that year you're often spoken of as a Brownlow contender as well, despite a bit of a knee problem, but at the end of 1968, the Demons refused to give you a two-year contract, is that correct? That's 
Correct, uh, Sam. I played with the state side in um, in 1968 uh, in Perth, and it was after that game that I was approached by um, both South Fremantle and East Fremantle to take up a coaching position with their clubs. Now, coaching was the furthest thing from my mind, and but uh, at the time I was not interested, as I say. I thought that well. He would be a good chance to take my wife to Perth and uh, uh, have a chat to the two clubs, but uh, with no intention at all to pursue that that line. Um, I came back and made Melbourne aware that I'd been approached by the two clubs. I spoke to Cardwell and told him that uh, I was a Melbourne player through and through. I wanted to play 200 games with the club and more and uh, that I had no interest with these offers. Jim then said that I should talk to the chairman of selectors, being Colin McLean, and uh, I did that, and it was in that conversation that I was told as a 28-year-old that he did not think that I had two more years of VFL football left, and um, um, that he couldn't and would not support uh, giving me a two-year contract with the club. So I guess I thanked Colin there and then and uh, decided to um, pursue the coaching roles and uh, I decided to go and play with South Fremantle. But they refused to clear you initially, didn't they, the Demons? Well, it was annoying, I guess, Sam, because in the last seven years of my, of my service with Melbourne... You know, I'd won three best and fairest, runners-up twice and runners-up three times. So I'd featured in the top three in the in the last seven years, and yet here I was told that uh, I, I didn't have two years left, which was a little hard to, <laughs> to take, I can assure you. And uh, um, I guess in pursuing the, the, the coaching role, uh, it gave me some some uh, uh, happy feeling to think that the following year as as coach of South Fremantle I, I was picked to play for WA against Victoria so I made it clear to Colin McLean when that I still had a little bit left <laughs> well said you had the last laugh but I just wonder because of all those things did it sort of end on after all the good times something a uh, bad terms with the D's not from my perspective no I okay. mean I had a fine career with Melbourne and uh, I loved every moment of it. I was disappointed. I was terribly disappointed that I, I wasn't still playing with them, but um, I could never um, leave on bad terms. But the other part of it was you captain coach South Fremantle to a flag in 1970, so you mentioned state selection, but that must have been a sweet one as well. Well, it was after the first year. The first year was a disaster. <laughs> I, uh, we won five matches finished stone bottomless last yep. and then I thought well something something we had to do something drastic in the second year and it was then that I went to the club and told them that I wanted to be sole selector because I wasn't happy with the selectors that I'd had in my first year uh, as is the case uh, those two guys that were co-selectors had been in that position for a number of years prior and they had sets against players and uh, 
I wasn't able to get what I thought was my best team on the ground at all times. So uh, reluctantly, they gave me that role and uh, we went from last to premiership, which was uh, a nice a nice return. Indeed, indeed it was. So we skip forward a bit here. You joined the Melbourne board as a director in 1991 and you served as chief executive from 92 to 97. Now, Hassa, in keeping with your career, there wasn't a dull moment here either. What, <laughs> what, what do you remember of the events of 1996 and what a whirlwind it was when the Melbourne Hawks appeared set to be formed? Well, you go back. You go back probably eighteen months or mm-hmm. two years, and again, we were very conscious that things were changing pretty drastically in terms of uh, of AFL football. I think ninety two, ninety two, ninety three. I think player managers came on the scene, and uh, in my opinion, that was the start of a, uh, a real change in AFL football. In that. Money became a big issue. Uh, contracts were, salary caps were introduced and salary caps were increasing. And we were looking at the, you know, the, the five years hence. And it was our belief that the salary cap was going to explode. And we felt that uh, the club was in a position whereby we um, were behind the eight ball because of the attitude, still the attitude of the Melbourne Football Club to be um, totally professional. And we put up a plan that um, we felt that um, financially the club was in a very good state. Player-wise, we were not strong. And uh, we looked at options. And I say we looked at options. The board looked at options. And it was decided we should do a study uh, to see where the football club was positioned and where we should be positioned to go to go forward. It was in that we had a, a meeting up at Land, uh, not Lansfield, um, uh, up country, and it was decided there again that an option would be to pursue the option of maybe um, marrying together with another club that could provide probably an instant. Um, um, addition of players into the club. And I guess, uh, you know, we looked at the various clubs and it was decided that probably if we were going to pursue that, that Hawthorne perhaps um, offered the best option. And uh, I guess that was the start of it. That was a very hard, uh, terribly hard decision to make. I know that uh, Ian Ridley suffered as president, he found it most difficult to even think of the idea of the Melbourne Football Club changing and marrying together with another club. Um, but as it turned out, after a lot of um, um, study and um, um, looking at looking at the options, that, that it was decided that we should go ahead with it. But then Don Scott at Hawthorne and there was the emergence of a Melbourne supporter by the name of Joe Gutnick, didn't it? It saw the anti-merger brigade just relatively quickly, I think, gain strength and voice. And I, it is easy in hindsight, but Hassar, as CEO at the time and someone closer to the uh, to the specifics than so many, was there regret that it didn't happen in the immediate aftermath? Did you and, and others think it, it should have happened at the time? Well, I think all the studies we did... 
uh, even though we found it hard to reach the decision that we did to to pursue um, a merge. At that stage, Sam, also, um, I think, you know, the lead were making it very, very clear that if clubs were prepared to marry together, that they would certainly financially support it, as, as their idea was to try and reduce the number of clubs in Victoria, and this was one way of achieving that. And so, therefore, we probably had the support of the of the AFL Commission to pursue, and uh, as it turned out, uh, whilst we as a board, and particularly Ridley myself as, as Melbourne players and McMahon and Melbourne players, the last thing we wanted was to lose the identity of the of the Melbourne Football Club. Mm. But um, um, we were confident that we had we had done the work, and we were confident of probably succeeding. But we could understand the reaction of the Melbourne supporters uh, and probably the. AFL public in general that um, um, it was something that uh, was going to be hard to hard to achieve and credit to Don Scott uh, Don rallied the ranks of Hawthorne and uh, it didn't uh, go ahead personally I felt that reluctantly I didn't want it to happen but I thought it should happen Hassa, we're speaking four rounds into the 2021 season. Melbourne have just made their best start to a campaign since 1994. They're four and zip, one of only three undefeated teams in the competition. Early days, but what have you made of it all? Look, they're looking pretty good at the moment. I think uh, they've obviously changed their, their their team plan and strategies. They, they've introduced a lot of pace into the side. They've introduced some good talented youth in the side and I think the, the, that combined with I guess the experience of um, of a lot of players that have now got some games uh, under their belt that we're probably positioned to um, make a run at the, at, at the finals um, hopefully I mean we've made a very good start and certainly the confidence should be fairly high at the moment uh, four out of four is uh, a, a great start, uh, but you've got to continue that over the next. The next three or four games will be very important. I think you know the missing or having May out of the side for the next two or three or four weeks mm. will be a test of uh, the depth and strength of our, our list. I suppose, not to finish on a sour note, but the fact that you can still lay claim to being a member of the club's last premiership side, and we know they're mightily hard to win in 1964, I'd imagine that's a source of sadness for you and, and, and some of your teammates, however. What do you mean by sadness? Well, the fact that it's been that long since you've won another one, the fact you can still say you're a member of the most recent premiership side. Uh, <laughs> it's really a bit embarrassing, Sam, Yeah, isn't right. It? Um, uh, to, to think that the club has gone so long without having success, um, uh, and I feel for the players. I mean, I, I really feel for the players who put the effort in and uh, uh, have not had the the success that we experienced. And particularly from my own perspective, because I walked into a premiership side and uh, played in what three in the first five or six years of my career, and uh, something that players 
are lucky enough to achieve one. Hassan, man, it's been great to catch up today. I mean, you have had an incredible journey in football. And, and as we've touched on, you've been there for, well, probably three of the biggest moments in Melbourne Football Club history. But amongst it all, you had a wildly successful career, franked in more recent years, of course, by Team of the Century and AFL Hall of Fame selections. Well done on all you achieved. And, and thanks a lot for joining us. Good, Sam. Thanks. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.